Lolo Jones cleared many hurdles in life to reach the 2008 Summer Olympic Games in Beijing. Growing up in poverty in Des Moines, Iowa, she overcame homelessness, separation from her family, and debilitating struggles with depression to become the fastest 100-meter hurdler in the world among women. She fell in the trials in 2004 in Athens and was not able to compete in those Olympics. But here she was four years later at the peak of her physical capacities. She was poised at the starting line between her and the gold medal, 100 meters and 10 hurdles. The gun sounded and Jones bolted off the blocks. By the time she cleared the eighth hurdle, She had a commanding lead, even in such a short race. The elusive dream was in her sight. Only two more hurdles. I felt the gold around me, she said later. But as Jones leaped to clear the ninth hurdle, her heel clipped the crossbar. She stumbled and she failed to meddle. She ran most of that race flawlessly. But failing to finish well cost Lolo Jones a coveted Olympic medal. Now in the big scheme of things, that was a minor setback. But it serves to illustrate the far greater and eternal challenge that marks our lives as the followers of Jesus Christ. Ours is not a race we win in competition against others. And ours is not a race that is dependent upon natural gifts and susceptible to bad breaks. Ours is an ethical race demanding unyielding fidelity to Jesus Christ to the very end. Ours is a race we must finish well. And that is no given. William Barclay tells of a famous man who was pressed to authorize the writing of a biography of his life before he was dead. The wise man flatly refused, explaining, I have seen so many men fall out on the last lap. He wanted to finish well, not simply run part of the race well. We are all susceptible to this. We're all susceptible to pulling out of the race early. To abandoning the faith. To stumbling and betraying Jesus as our calling. And thus finishing not well. Not finishing to the end. What hangs in the balance is not some fleeting earthly metal, but nothing less than our eternal destiny and the cause of Christ on this earth. It is with these very heavy realities in view that the Apostle Paul pens the grand finale of his final words to his disciple, Timothy. If you'll make your way there to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is in a Roman prison facing execution for the Gospel. Titus finds himself most likely in the cauldron of Ephesus with false teachers all around. And there's the pending loss of Paul. What will that mean for this young man? And so Paul's burden in this book is that Timothy's fidelity to Christ would remain intact. That he would fulfill his calling as a minister of the Gospel. 
Really, the whole theme of the book is sounded already in chapter 1 and verse 8 where he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner. As I end my life, as I pass on the torch of faith to you, Timothy, don't pull out of the race. Finish well. Endure to the end. The key in chapter 4 In the first five verses, as Paul addresses Timothy directly in this grand finale of his purposes for Timothy, we find it there at the end of verse 5 where he says, fulfill your ministry. Paul gathers up, as one has said, the concerns expressed throughout the letter, and he now crystallizes them in these five verses. And that is the essence of all that he has said in this book to this young man. Fulfill your ministry. Finish well. And then in verses 6-8, through the focus turns on Paul, who has finished the race in essence. He has come to the place now where he is crossing over that finish line. He's finished well. He's remained loyal to Christ and serves as an example to his disciple. We listen to these two warriors in the faith. These two individuals who have been through so much for Christ. And as one faces death, and the other faces a huge challenge to carry on while Paul is gone. We hear this call even to this man who has been through so much and proven so faithful. Timothy, finish well. Fulfill your ministry. And to equip him to that end, this man on the cutting edge of Gospel ministry, Paul communicates to him these words. For his part, for Timothy's part, he must finish well by staying the course. I charge you, chapter 4, verse 1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, I charge you, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. We'll pause over these words for some time today. Let them flow into our being. Let the Word of God illumine our thoughts into His mind. Paul's closing charge to Timothy here in verse 2 is solemnized by the most fear-inducing language conceivable. He says, listen to me, Timothy. I am giving you this charge and I do so before God, the Creator of the universe, your Maker, the Sustainer of all things. I make this charge before the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down His life to pay the penalty of your sin. I make this charge before God and Jesus Christ. Sometimes when giving direction to my kids, I'll say something like this, Do you hear me? Now, hopefully every command is supposed to be followed and heard, but when you say that, do you hear me? It brings some unique attention to the command. It solemnizes it a little bit. But when I stand as a pastor to perform a wedding between a man and a woman, we're dealing with something far more solemn in nature. And so I say something like, before God and these witnesses, before God and these witnesses. 
do you solemnly pledge? Invoking the presence of God serves to focus the attention. What I'm saying to you, Timothy, is before God. It is before Jesus Christ. Three ideas here. Jesus in His role as judge stands with me as I give you this charge. Who is about to judge is probably the better way to translate the original text. He is about to judge the living and the dead. Who does that include? That includes everyone, clearly. When Jesus returns to earth, He will judge the dead who will be resurrected to life. He will judge those then living on the earth at that time. We are here in these last days between the first and the second coming of Christ. And from God's eternal perspective, Jesus stands poised to render that judgment. He is the judge of the living and the dead. Secondly, Jesus' pending appearance. Paul appeals to this. At His appearing, the Greek word used to refer to a king's visit in that day, towns worked diligently to prepare their town because the king would assess their worthiness of his future favor. And so roads were prepared and the town was cleaned up and problems were dealt with because the king was coming. It was His appearing. His epiphany. And so I appeal to you, Timothy, before the Jesus who is about to appear. And I appeal to you thirdly, by the Jesus who will reign as King. I appeal to you and His kingdom. We see the phrase at the end of verse 1. Following His second coming, Jesus will set up His kingdom and will rule the earth. Contextually here, I think the emphasis on kingdom is the future kingdom. The earthly reign of Christ. Timothy, I'm charging you before the King of kings who will eventually reign forever. In His presence, with a focus on His pending judgment, I earnestly, urgently plead with you as I'm about to die, preach the Word. He's got His attention. What more could He say to focus that attention Preach the Word. What does preach mean? The Greek word speaks of proclaiming a message as a herald. In the days before mass media and electronic public address systems, a herald was a man who traveled as a governmental official from place to place proclaiming the will of the king. This is what the king wants you, the citizens of this town, to know. It was his job to raise his voice and to speak distinctly so all could hear. It was His job to announce the message, never to alter it or even to linger to debate its worth. That was not His job. The herald, the Kerux, got points for making the king's will known. He could not only lose his job, he could lose his head if he altered the message to please the hearers. It was the king's word that needed to be proclaimed. So what is the meaning then to Timothy here? As we take the word preach, to preach the word, we think of it probably primarily in its most formal sense of one standing formally before the assembly and proclaiming, this is what God says. But as we look at the word in the New Testament, it certainly would include personal evangelism, teaching of small groups, and of course the formal preaching before the assembly. Wherever it was that Timothy was to announce the Word of the Lord, he was to do so faithfully as a herald speaking God's words. This is his calling to tell other people 
what God has said. What does that look like? Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. That is, there will be times when Timothy feels like preaching and times when he does not feel like it. Take your stand, Timothy, and preach the Word. There will be times when his hearers receive the Word gladly and times when they resist it. Stay on duty, Timothy, and preach the Word. There will be times when it will be safe to herald the truth of God and times when it will be extremely dangerous. Carry on, Timothy, and preach the Word. Paul preached at Troas to listeners so eager they listened until the sun came up. All through the night. Some of them got rather sleepy, as we remember. But the sun came up. And Paul preached the Gospel in Lystra when he was stoned nearly to death. In season and out of season. Preach the Word. Tremendous illustration of preaching in season and out of season comes from the 19th century English pastor Charles Simeon. According to John Kimbrough, from whom I largely draw here, in 1782, think of this, the 23-year-old Simeon was appointed by the bishop as curate in charge at Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge near the university. He was essentially the preaching pastor chosen by the bishop at that time for this high position Now these positions at this time in England's history were largely political posts. They were almost bought from the bishop. And indeed, Simeon's wealthy father pressed for his son to get this post at Holy Trinity. One of the major problems was that in the process of coming to the university, Simeon was dramatically converted to Christ. The university at this time was in steep spiritual decline and there was widespread rebellion against the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Taking on this position as a vicar in Cambridge, any vicar in Cambridge of one of the churches was expected to play their part. They essentially purchased the office and then it was their job to tell the congregation what the congregation wanted to hear. Well, when Holy Trinity congregation heard that Charles Simeon was to be their next pastor, they said, no way on earth are we going to listen to some young man filled with these goofy ideas of repentance and conversion coming into our church and preaching God's Word as he sees it. So they had their own choice of who would be the preacher and teacher in their church. Imagine going into this situation at age 23. They had a Mr. Hammonds who preached for five years any time the congregation had the ability to choose who would preach in the church. The other times, Simeon preached. When Hammonds left the church after five years of this, the church got another man to their liking who would tell them what they wanted to hear and he preached for seven years in the church every time the congregation could choose. For those twelve years out of season, Charles Simeon continued to proclaim the Word of God faithfully. The church was mad. In that day, the seats were boxes that would be locked with a door and you had to purchase your way into the box. 
they didn't come. And they kept the doors locked so that no one could sit in the pews that were in the church building. Simeon, at his own expense, rented benches, chairs for the people to sit in the aisles. The angry church threw the benches out into the street. And so for over a decade, out of season, Charles Simeon preached to people who stood in the aisles of the church. While he preached, students hurled bricks through windows in on the worship services and when he lectured in the church. It was dangerous for him to walk across the campus. He was such a hated man for proclaiming the truth of Christ faithfully. In one of his journal entries, he expresses utter amazement that a single student walked with him and talked with him across campus for 15 minutes. That stunned him. That a man would be that courageous to walk with him for 15 minutes. Perhaps the key to his endurance were the words that he had carved into the church pulpit where only the preacher could see it. John 12 and verse 21 where people coming to Christ said, Sirs, disciples, we would see Jesus. So if bricks coming into the assembly and people standing in the aisles for 12 years not appreciated and other people chosen to preach when the assembly could. Charles Simeon preached God's Word. He wrote his resignation letter. He thought of quitting many times. But out of season, he preached for 54 years. Facing many waves of out of season times, he eventually won a wide following as he labored faithfully to proclaim the truth of Christ with patience, with diligence, with accuracy, with clarity. And when Charles Simeon died, a single man, never married, a man who once marveled that a single student would dare to talk to him on the grounds of Cambridge University, when Charles Simeon died over half of the university attended the funeral to pay their respects. He preached the Word of the Lord in season and out of season. Timothy, preach the Word. What does that mean? Paul lays out some ideas which are very important to steer us as to what that means. It means preaching the Word ready in season and out of season. Timothy is to reprove. That is, to marshal biblical truth in order to show people their sin. To convict sinners in light of the truth. He was to rebuke, which was a response to those who will not change their stubborn and sinful ways. It is to de declare that someone is violating God's truth. And so there's to be rebuke. He is to exhort his response to those willing to change, to urge, to admonish, to encourage them in the right way. And he is to do this with complete patience and teaching. Patience, the word speaks of an attitude. Now think of it. It does not grow easily irritated. It does not give up on people. It does not despair, but rather patiently persists in pointing people to align their lives with God's truth. 
and teaching. Making it clear to people what God has said, not simply commanding and rebuking people. Any parent who corrects without teaching is a mean-spirited bully, and the same is true of any minister who simply says, stop doing this and start doing what I tell you. No, it's to come with patient, gentle, persistent teaching. Enlightening people about what God has said over the long haul, in season and out of season. So faithful preaching, we can say, is one, persistently and persuasively proclaiming what God has said. It's not merely reading the Bible, is it? He doesn't say, Timothy, read the Bible. Read God's Word. But he says, proclaim it, teach it with reproof, rebuke, exhortation. So it's to persistently, persuasively proclaim what God has said. But it is the kind of speech that corrects and convicts of sin. In personal witness, we do not go around telling people they're really pretty good. We go around exhorting them, urging them, even in a gracious way rebuking and saying your sin is taking you to hell. And within the context of the assembly, as the Word of God is proclaimed, it's to be done so in a way that corrects real people. That convicts real people of sin. The sting of rebuke is a necessary component of strong teaching. Occasionally people will say to me, that one really stepped on my toes. I really mean no harm, ever. But I always say every time, mine too. The Word of God is meant to rebuke. And if we are hearing, preaching, and teaching that never corrects, never challenges, never rebukes us, we're not hearing real preaching. And it's all around out there. People who have a very significant grasp of a text even, who never bring that text to bear on the lives of sinners. Alcibiades of Athens was said to say to Socrates on more than one occasion, Socrates, I hate you. Because every time I meet you, you can make me see what I am. So with true preaching, God's Word is to help us to see who we are. And the picture is not always pretty. Thirdly then, faithful preaching gives light and hope in Christ. As 3.16 puts it, It is profitable for teaching what is right, for reproving what is false doctrine, for correcting where we are morally twisted, and for training us in righteousness to live the way that God wants us to live. God's Word is the external, objective truth by which we live. His Word is a window into His mind and soul, a revealer of our own that stretches past the ages and generations, and speaks objectively with insight. The story is told of an ancient slave who was sent by his master to deliver a basket of figs and a letter. Well, I've got this made, thought the slave. I've got this whole basket of figs, which is a delicacy in his ancient setting, and I've got nobody to watch me. And so as he took the basket of figs to the recipient, he ate a bunch of the figs. Gave the basket to the recipient and the man was elated 
Oh, it's wonderful to receive this basket of figs from your master. Until he read the letter. Then he looked at the slave and said, you have stolen some figs. He was stunned. How could this piece of paper see what he had done? This illiterate slave had no concept of the written word. He just knew that it was powerful. It saw him steal figs. I've stolen no figs. I don't know what you're talking about. But he went back to his master confused. Another day came when the master said, take another basket of figs to my friend. He took it with another letter, but this time he had it fixed. He put a big rock over the letter so it couldn't see him when he stole some more figs. The man again receiving the basket was elated. Thank you for another basket of figs from your master. He took out the letter and read it and said, you have stolen some figs. The slave confessed his crimes, stunned by the divine ability of the written word to know his sin even when it never saw him. And so it is with God's word. It's words on a page, but they look into our soul. It cuts to the heart because it is the words of the living God. Timothy's faithfulness to preach the Word, to reprove, to rebuke and exhort with patience and instruction was necessary for him to fulfill his ministry. And it was necessary, verse 3, because of the prevailing circumstances and realities around him. For the time is coming, verse 3, when people will not endure sound teaching. For, that is the connection there, you must persist in preaching the Word because of the prevailing orientation of the hearers. The time is coming. Now remember, as we looked at the first part of chapter 3, and the last days, it's not that the last days are future, and it's not that these days he's speaking of here in 4.3 are coming down the road. They're here with us right now. It's just a, a figure of speech. The time is coming, indeed it is here with us, when people will not endure sound teaching. That word endure says something to us, Eden Baptist Church. Now believe me, I am very as concerned as anybody here is concerned about preachers that just waste people's time by talking to be heard. There's a lot of preachers that don't have a lot to say and it's really rough to endure what is said. As one put it very well, somebody's going to suffer for the sermon. Either you do as the preacher or the congregation does as the hearers. Having said that, even for the best of preaching, there is a call on the part of the congregation to endure it. That says something about the kind of preaching that God envisions. It's not titillating speech necessarily. It's the straightforward truth of God which we indeed largely know. Hopefully, a speaker will always bring out some things new, but many things old that we know very well. But we endure God's Word. There is a discipline that is required for us to continue to take in that Word and to profit from it. 
But Timothy, you're going to be operating there in Ephesus in a culture where there are people who will not endure sound doctrine. Middle of verse 3, but in contrast, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Itching ears. There's two kinds of pleasure that our brain gives to us. There's anticipation and there's satisfaction pleasure. There's a weird kind of satisfaction or, or anticipation pleasure when your ear starts to itch. What do you want? You, you can't wait to put that finger in there and scratch it. It feels so good, doesn't it? Both are kind of a sort of pleasure. This anticipation and this satisfaction. Well, false teachers will always find a bull market for people who have, an, who have itching ears. They want the joy of satisfaction. They say, oh, we want to hear this. And then there's a teacher who comes along and says exactly what they want to hear. And, ah, oh, that feels so good. That's just what I wanted to hear. I think there's basically two kinds of people then that want false doctrine and do not endure healthy doctrine. The first are those who are bored with truth. Heard it all before. I know this all. Which they don't, but there's that thought that I've heard this all in Sunday school. They're bored. Secondly, are those craving to have someone tell them what they want to hear. We live in a bored culture, don't we? And it affects the way we hear the Word of God. All you've got to do to know that we live in a bored culture is to look at potato chips. When I was a kid, you went to the store and you bought potato chips. But today, it's flavor-blasted sour cream and chives with a moderate hint of hot chili pepper and low-sodium potato chips. It's ridiculous. There's all these goofy flavors that are thrown into everything. We're just bored. And that boredom marks the way many people who claim to follow Christ labor in the texts of Scripture. They don't have any more interest in it. They're looking with itching ears for somebody to satisfy the craving for something new. And that craving is always something they want to hear. Novelty. Commendation. They want to hear that they can love God and love money. And there's preachers out there all over the place telling them exactly what they want to hear. They want to hear that they can feel good about themselves knowing that God unconditionally accepts them just as they are. And there's preachers that tell them just that. They want to hear that Jesus offers salvation but makes no real claim upon your life. Happy to give you a ticket to heaven. And preachers tell them just that. They want to hear that Jesus came to deliver them from suffering and that if they'll just do what they're supposed to do, God will make all the problems go away. And there's preachers who tell them just that. Turning off the path of truth, they wander off into the minefield of myths. 
in Timothy's day, fanciful legends and bizarre reinterpretations of Scripture. Well, we've got a lot of bizarre reinterpretations of Scripture going on today as well. Interpretations later generations will laugh to scorn as they replace the old myths with the new myths that are just a regurgitation of the old myths. Bored churchgoers, weary of the soul-searching truth of God's Word, who yearn to hear the satisfying gurgle of self-centered teachers who doodle with words while trolling for pay and the accolades of their hearers. Not you, Timothy. Not you. I don't got a whole lot of people here supporting me anymore. Where I sit, it looks like the world is falling apart as the world would judge it. I'm alone as I'm dying here in prison. But our call, Timothy, is to preach the Word. This is the world that will surround you, wandering away from the truth into myths. But, verse 5, as for you, as for you, does that ring a bell? Remember in chapter 3, he describes the last days and the evil people that will be there, but he says in verse 10, you, however, in contrast to these people, you, however, Timothy. Verse 14, but as for you, Timothy. Then again here in chapter 4 and verse 5, but as for you, in contrast to the false teachers, in contrast to those who are living in sin, you, Timothy, be sober-minded. Don't be the kind of preacher that's looking to titillate people with your words. Trying to impress them with some new idea. Telling them exactly what they want to hear and staying off of the rebuke. No, not you. Be sober-minded. Don't be intoxicated with this insanity. God has spoken. Christ is the judge of the world. And He stands poised to render His judgment for His servants. You will meet Him, Timothy. Stay self-controlled, balanced. Avoid the stupefying drivel of the false teachers. Don't be taken in by false doctrine. Endure suffering. If he's not going to do the first, if he's going to be sober-minded, that is, then he will need to endure suffering as one who faithfully preaches the Word in a world that loves myth and despises the truth of God. And it's in every one of us Even those who honor the Word of God. There are myths, ideas of Satan that continue to bang around in our head. You have got to be faithful. Don't be taken in by their false teaching, but that means, Timothy, you must endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. This is not a church office of someone who goes around from church to church chosen as an evangelist to preach to the saints. An evangelist in the New Testament is one who took the Gospel and proclaimed it to unbelievers. Proclaim the Gospel. Seek out and proclaim to unbelievers this truth of Christ crucified and risen. Summarizing it all, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Finish well. The clinching word of instruction for Timothy, finish well. It is instruction delivered by a man who has done just that. Timothy must continue on in the faith and not allow the pressures or the false teachers to sway him from the truth and from the true path. But now secondly, as we come to verse 6, we find Paul has finished well. 
by enduring to the end. The discipler leaves for his disciple an example. You notice verse 6, the word for, which was why we really need to include it in with the text we're looking at today. For, that is what I am telling you about enduring and fulfilling your ministry, is all the more urgent and important because of this. Verse 6, I'm ready to be poured, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. All that Paul has said to Timothy is the more urgent because Paul has finished his course. So like an old warrior passing on his sword to his disciple, Paul says, carry on. The mission cannot die with me. I don't want this legacy of Paul I want you to carry on this living faith as you proclaim the truth of God's Word. My time in doing that is about done. I'm like a drink offering. Every morning as the day began, and there were many other opportunities, but just to picture it one place, as the day began, the priest would take a cup of wine and they would pour it against the side of the altar as a sacrifice as they then sacrificed that lamb to begin the day. I'm like that cup of liquid being poured out. My life is ebbing away. I'm about to die. But as my life is being poured out in sacrifice for the Gospel of Christ, here's what I can tell you, Timothy. Now, this is between two men who know each other well, and he's not messing around right now. He's saying the truth. I have fought the fight. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. His ministry had been an agonizing struggle. The man writing from prison has suffered hunger, Shipwreck, sleeplessness, bandits, by the way, slander, stoning, floggings, imprisonments, and the hostility of false teachers everywhere. To say nothing of just the fighting in between the members of the churches that he's had to lead. With all of these dangers, toils, and snares, says Paul, I've run to the end of the line and I have endured I have not given up on Christ, and He has not given up on me. And it's been a good fight. Because it was God's fight. I'd say to you, if you are a follower of Christ and you're not in this fight... You don't have a sense that you're in a battle for the truth. You don't have a sense that you're in a battle to proclaim the Gospel, to maintain that truth in this fallen world. You need to get a life. You're living on the wrong page. Paul knew that life was a battle. He wasn't taking up space, simply consuming this world until he was done. His life was invested in the Gospel of Christ and it's been a good fight. But it's been agonizing. I finished the race. 
The Christian race is not one you win, it's one you finish. But as I come to this point, Timothy, there's anybody that would say, okay, I'm done. I'm giving up now. Following Christ is too hard. I want no more of it. Let me out of prison. I'll renounce the faith. Whatever you need. It would be Paul. No, I've finished the faith. I'm still trusting. I'm still believing. I've kept the faith, in fact, either meaning that he has subjectively continued to believe the Gospel or that he has objectively protected that Gospel against false teaching. Both, of course, are true. He's been loyal to the faith. He has not denied Christ, but he has endured to the end. Chapter 2, verses 12. Verse 12. He's been faithful. Verse 13. Is Paul boasting here in himself? No, these are responsibilities we all have. And Paul simply speaks as a dying man who is leaving behind an example for Timothy to follow. Paul knows He is empowered by Christ. He's told Timothy this over and over again. He doesn't need to fill that in here. But he has been faithful to Christ. And he's saying with earnestness to Timothy, run to the end. Don't give up. Be faithful to your calling. Fulfill your ministry. He says that because here we are. Paul urged Timothy to be faithful who passed on the faith to others, who were trained to pass it on to others, and who have passed it on in perpetuity to this day and this gathering of Eden Baptist Church. And if you don't see yourself as part of that chain, part of that link of defending the truth, maintaining the accuracy of the Gospel, proclaiming it in a world that is opposed to it, you have no life. You're just taking up space been a good fight. I've finished. And as I'm now crossing that finishing line, I know I've kept the faith. I've fought for Christ. The specter of death haunts his cell. He smells his pending doom. But none of this shakes him because his eyes are not focused on the bars of his cell. They're focused on the brilliant gates of God's eternal kingdom. Verse 8. And we might link it to chapter 2 and verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. Verse 8 of chapter 4. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous Judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. I think this is a figurative crown, not a literal one that we'll throw at Jesus' feet, but it is the fruit of Paul's labors for Christ will be his full acceptance by God as a forgiven sinner, not as a reward, but as a gift of God's grace. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and the only way a sinner can stand in God's presence is to stand forgiven. Paul has full assurance that he will stand in that forgiven state because of what Christ has done as he trusts in the work of Jesus. You may have no confidence like verse 8. I may speak to someone here you say, I have no sense that I will stand before the righteous judge of the universe. Well, you will. And you'll stand there as a sinner in desperate need of forgiveness. 
You'll stand in the presence of a holy God as one who has lied like the slave in the figs. As one who has been greedy for this world's things like the slave. You will stand before this holy God as one who has lusted for what is not His and has loved self over God and others. When you stand before that holy judge, you will stand there in your sin before His purity. Your hope is not to emulate Paul. It's to know Paul's Savior. To put your faith and your confidence that there was an ultimate sacrifice that was poured out for you. The death of Jesus Christ paying the penalty of sin. His resurrection power defeating death. His life and a righteous standing before Him is your ultimate concern. I know that on that day I will stand. That day that Christ returns as judge. Verse 8 now completes the circle to verse 1. The Jesus who will appear in His kingdom and who will judge the living and the dead. I know that on that day there will be this crown of righteousness, this righteous standing before God that is granted to me by His mercy. He will reward it to me there. It is there waiting for me. Now, not only to me, Timothy, but to everyone who loves His appearing. Is that a reference to eschatology buffs? They just love Christ's appearing? No. It's just a figure of speech, one thing for the whole. This is a reference to every believer. We will be people who love Jesus Christ and thus love the appearing of Christ because that's the context. He focuses simply on the appearance of Christ. But if we truly, genuinely know Christ as Savior, we want to see Him. Remember how Peter put it? Though you don't see Him, you love Him. That's the love that's put in our heart. This love for this Christ we've never visually seen. But we long to be with Him. Why? Because the Word revealed has revealed to us this Christ this Savior, our Savior, and we long to be with Him. For those who long for His appearing, who long to be in the presence of Christ, there is this hope no matter what comes in this fallen world. Paul knows that a Roman judge will soon execute him. The judge Paul is concerned about reigns from heaven. And it is that judge whose decision matters in the end. It's not what this world thinks about us. It's being faithful to the truth of God. Running the race to the end. That's what matters. Be faithful to this end, Timothy. Finish well. And God will fill your heart with this same assurance of great reward. Live by faith in the promises of God and endure to the end. Failing to clear the last hurdle in an Olympic race hurts but it is no ultimate tragedy. Failing to finish the race as a follower of Jesus is the ultimate tragedy. And we are talking here about two men who we would have put absolute trust in them enduring. And yet, Paul says to Timothy over and over again, hang in there. Finish well. Persevere to the end. Paul is concerned for himself but I have fought the good fight. 
He is concerned for Timothy. He does not want the mission to die. And he is concerned for those to whom Paul has passed, or Timothy has passed on that truth. What is crucial in endurance is that we as an individual, that we as a community of faith, preach the Word. That we are faithful to the truth revealed by God. As we are, by the grace of God, we will persevere and we'll finish the race. Lolo Jones, with real dignity, said after she stumbled in Beijing, it's hurdles. And if you can't finish the race, you're not supposed to be the champion. Well, stumbling on a hurdle in the Olympics in the big scheme of things is going to be no different than a mosquito bite. But we can say it's the Christian life. And if we don't endure to the end, persevering in our service in Christ's cause, elevating His Word, focusing on eternity, we will not enter His presence. This is not because any one of us can earn our way there, but because those who deny Jesus in life, He will deny in death. Chapter 2 and verse 12. And those who trust the Gospel will live with an eye focused on the eternal reward which awaits us. Listen to me. If we really capture that, we are not going to look like the world around us. There's a heavy weight here. Those who deny Christ, He will deny. Chapter 2 and verse 12. That's a heavy weight. But it is a weight that will be buoyed by the eternal prospect of enduring to the end, remaining faithful to Christ, and rejoicing in the end that we have finished well. That prospect should change everything. If we really embrace it, it has, and it will continue to do so until we finish well and enter the presence of Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Spending these few moments in a sense in the presence of Paul and Timothy, our Father, we feel so very small. We consider what they endured. God, I pray that it would change our focus. That we would remain faithful to Christ. I pray in behalf of anyone who's separated from Christ. I pray that You bring them to saving faith in Him. I pray for those of us who know Him that we will endure and help one another. As we gather at this picnic today, I pray that our presence there will bespeak the new community that Christ has formed and that we will together in our words, in our play, in our laughter, in our conversation, will help one another endure. Teach us the importance of this. Guide us to this end. And I pray that each one who knows You as Savior would finish well, knowing indeed that because of Your power and strength, we will. To this end we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.